this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello everyone, my name is Illich Diaz Gutierrez. I'm a cardiothoracic surgery fellow at the University of Minnesota. And today I have the pleasure of having Dr. Daniela Molina with me uh, to talk about the technical details of esophagectomies. Uh, Dr. Daniela Molina is the director of esophageal surgery at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Um, she is uh, basically a thought leader in the field. She has written multiple book chapters in uh, uh, peer-reviewed journals on this topic, so we're very uh, thankful that she's here to discuss this with us. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. That's a pleasure. I really uh, enjoy uh, resident education, and uh, it's an honor to be here and speaking about this subject. Thank you. Uh, so today, as I mentioned, we're going to discuss the different approaches for esophagectomy. Uh, the uh, Ivor Lewis, we're going to talk about the three-hole McKeon transhiatal and also uh, minimal invasive esophagectomy. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. Uh, first, in terms of patient selection and, and surgical planning, um, how do you decide about uh, which approach is better for uh, each patient? Uh, what are the things that you consider when you think about the approach? Well, as you know, I am uh, very much a proponent of minimally invasive esophagectomy. So anytime I can, um, I do offer a patient minimally invasive approach. I don't think there are any um, contraindication to minimally invasive approach. Um, I've um, performed, you know, minimally invasive esophagectomy in patients that have multiple abdominal surgeries in the past or chest surgery. It all depends on how much adhesions and scar tissue you find, and since you cannot tell that preoperatively, it's always worth trying. Then, of course, if you find that there is a hostile abdomen or chest, then you can always change plan. Uh, but in terms of um, type of procedures, a lot depends on where the tumor is located. So for the most part, the tumors that we see today are at the junction. Uh, so distal esophagus, EG junction, maybe proximal stomach. And so the Ivor Lewis approach is really gave us the best option uh, to uh, do an ex you know, the resection with a um, R0 uh, margin, but also a extensive abdominal and thoracic lymphadenectomy. Uh, so that would be my um, favorite approach if we have a distal tumor. If there is a mid-thoracic or squamous cell tumor, then uh, a three-holes esophagectomy should be considered, so modified McEwen, uh, for several reasons. Once, um, you know, you want it to really um, have a good margin of resection, but also your lymphadenectomy should be a little bit more extensive with the squamous cell because the involvement of lymph nodes, even peritracheal, um, it, it's a little bit um, more significant for squamous cell than for adenocarcinoma. Right. Which patients do you think for a transhiatal esophagectomy, um, do you uh, usually perform this for malignancy or only benign cases, or uh, yeah, what do you think? I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a very strong supporter of uh, transhiatal esophagectomy, but I think it's good for... Um, everyone to know how to do all of the approaches because you might find situation in which you know one technique is better than another and you want to know how to do it if that comes to that point so transoidal esophagectomy might be might have a role in you know very old patients uh, or on patients that you have a very early stage tumor mm -hmm. so that you know that maybe lymphadenectomy will not add much to the to the prognosis now, traditionally, the um, transaital approach was designed because of the fear of intrathoracic leak. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, we have done so much progress in terms of postoperative care and perioperative care that that is not as much a uh, worry as it was in the past. Okay. Um, so now let's go and talk about the conduits, the, um, yeah. the different options that you have. Can you just briefly tell us what yeah. uh, do you have available and which one is your preferred conduit? Now, of course, the stomach, it's the conduit that we use the most um, to reconstruct the esophagus. The, con the stomach is very well vascularized. It's, uh, it can be um, transposed easier to the chest you need or to the neck, as a matter of fact. Uh, you just need one anastomosis. Uh, so it makes it really um, perfect. 
for reconstruction. Um, now, if there is um, stomach surgery in the past uh, or the stomach is involved with cancers, and sometimes we see these, you know, distal esophageal cancers that had a really extensive gastric involvement, you know, stomach definitely has to go. So you have either a ruler Y with a jejunal loop or you can do a colon interposition. So colon interposition and jejunal interposition are a little bit more complex. Now, the jejunum can be transposed up in the chest pretty well up to maybe the inferior pulmonary vein. Um, depends on the anatomy. Some people have a little bit of a looser mesentery than others, and so you can make a longer loop. Uh, so uh, if so, my, my, let's say if I have to go in, in levels of difficulties, of course the stomach is the easiest. Mm -hmm. A jejunum with a win Y is my second choice if I can do that. If that's not possible, my third choice would be a colon interposition. Uh, colon interposition, usually I prefer the left colon if that's available. And with that, you can go in the chest or you can go up all the way to the neck. And then in the abdomen, depending on what you need to do, if you have a stomach that is not uh, involved by tumor, uh, but you don't have enough to use for reconstruction, then you can keep a little bit of a portion of the antrum and anastomose your colon to the antrum mm -hmm. uh, and then do your you know, colon anastomosis. But if you do not have a stomach at all, then you have to um, you know, do a ruin wine. Okay, uh, well, let's now talk about the operative steps. Um, so first, at the beginning of an esophagectomy, when you perform the upper endoscopy, uh, what are the things that you look for that um, are important in the initial evaluation endoscopically? Yeah. So I always do the endoscopy myself before I start a case, because you never know for sure where the tumor is located. Often those reports about endoscopies are not very well uh, defined. And um, especially for distal tumors, I'm very worried about gastric involvement. And so I take some time to look at the stomach very well, make sure that there is a stomach that is, you can distend with insufflation, um, that is, you know, has the, the pliability of a stomach mm -hmm. that has not been involved by cancer. And then, of course, always looking retroflexion, because you want to see the area of the junction, and you want to see if there is tumor that comes through the GE junction and goes uh, to involve the stomach. Um, important, the important um, also area to look is the uh, incisura. If your tumor goes all the way to the incisura, unlikely that you can use that stomach to reconstruct. So those are the steps that you always want to watch. The other thing important for me to look at is the pylorus. Not all pyloruses are alike, and so sometimes, and I think especially with adenocarcinomas, which I think there is probably a um, combination of biliary and gastric reflux at the base of the um, that leads to cancer, often the pylorus is very loose, and you can see some bile coming into the stomach. So I know those patients will not really have to be, I don't have to be that careful with my either pyloroplasty or Botox injection and so forth, but sometimes, especially in squamous type tumors, you see a very tight pylorus, and you have to really be careful in those patients because those are more at risk probably to, to uh, develop delayed gastric emptying on right. your conduit. The last thing I look at then is the proximal extension on the on the esophagus, and that's very important to look not just at cancer but also Barrett's esophagus. You do not want to leave any Barrett. Uh, on the esophagus after the anastomosis with the stomach because now you have gastric juice going into your distal esophagus and there is a chance of that cancer recurring. I do a bronchoscopy um, as well, a little bit to you know clean up if there is any um, secretions or anything like that. But also, if it's, especially for a squamous, you want to make sure that there is no involvement nor you know, uh, the membrane portion of the trachea doesn't look uh, abnormal at all. Uh, and then, of course, you just help anesthesia to place a double lumen tube. And what if the, the tumor was a lot more proximal than anticipated? Let's say that you were going to do a, an MIE and then you realize that the, the tumor or the barrier is too proximal. Would, how would that change, change plan. You? you have to be ready to change plan. And always have to be ready to do what's right for the patient. Mm -hmm. If you find out the tumor goes up proximally above 2025, 20, chances are you're not going to be able to do an anastomosis with a good proximal margin. Then you have to change plan and go in the chest first and do a three holes or a macular esophagectomy. 
Great. So uh, let's talk about the positioning and prepping. We talked about the double lumen and the tracheal tube. Uh, what other considerations in terms of lines and fluid management? Yeah, so I think communication with anesthesiologist is super important with these cases because you want to know what's going on in terms of hemodynamics. And especially with minimal invasive surgery, it's uh, even more important because you know, you're inflating the chest or the abdomen, creating alteration within the hemodynamics or you know, CO2 retention that might have an important uh, role in, even in the you know, post-operative care. So always discuss with the, the plan with anesthesia. Uh, I usually like to have an A-line, uh, so if there's any sudden change in blood pressure, uh, we can act upon those. I don't think a, a central line is necessary. You can have a nice large peripheral. During the abdominal phase of the case, often the urine output is low just because of the way you are positioned and the insufflation of the abdomen. And so you really have to work with the anesthesiologist to make sure that the patient is well um, uh, hydrated. With the chest, uh, it's a little bit more, uh, you know, it's easier to monitor um, fluid status, but, you know, you might have CO2 retention. You might have to work with the anesthesia. And there are specific times during the case, and maybe we'll go into that when we go step by step, but, you know, if you open a pleura when you're doing a transiatal dissection of your esophagus, you might have a sudden change or a sudden drop in your blood pressure, and you have to make sure that you prepare the anesthesiology because you know it's going to happen. You're going to have right. a little trans transitory, you know, tension pneumo, pressure's going to go down, you're going to just have to flatten the patient a little bit down, decrease your insufflation pressure, give it a little time to catch up. Most of the time, you don't need a chest tube. You just need a good communication. Right. Yeah, that's a very important uh, communication with anesthesiologists. Um, all right, well, let's go ahead and start with the specific steps of the, uh, of the operation. So can you tell us where do you place your ports? Uh, yeah, so I... Um, I use an approach where the uh, surgeon stands at the right side of the patient. I think the place you position the ports really very much depends on where the surgeon is actually standing to do the operation. So if you stand between the legs, your troca will be a little bit different than when you stand on the right side. So mm -hmm. the way I've learned and I practice is to stand on the right side of the patient. So the operator with the surgeon will have two trochers that I will use to do their dissection. One uh, 12 millimeter trocar, which is in the um, uh, flank, right flank, and the five millimeter trocar, which is in the right upper quadrant. And those two will serve to do all the procedure. The assistant is standing on the left side of the table. And we'll use that troca, which is the opti, um, you know, the, the, the first troca that I introduced, which is in the left upper quadrant, and then a five millimeter troca in the left flank. Right. And then I put the camera in the midline. Right. I use a Natanson liver retractor. I think that it's a vast liver retractor. It never moves. You put it in position and it stays. Uh, much better than the, you know, the other liver uh, retractor, the snake or the mm -hmm. fan that you can use from the right side. Okay. Uh, so what's the, uh, let's say you put your ports in, and what's the first part of the operation that you do? Yeah, so I divide the operation very much in steps, and mm -hmm. I try to do always the same steps. Same so way that, every time. Same way every time, so that, you know, the resident know exactly what we're going to do every single time. So I start actually with the uh, celiac lymphadenectomy. Mm -hmm. So we open the gastropathic ligament first, and we totally expose, you know, the area of the celiac uh, trunk and the hepatic artery, the left gastric artery and the splenic artery. We start dissection at the border between the pancreas and that fatty tissue right on top of the hepatic artery. You find the hepatic artery right away, then you know what it is, and you kind of you know, know how to spare and not injure it. Uh, we dissect um, that hepatic artery all completely up to the right uh, pillar of the cruise. Mm -hmm. And then uh, by freeing up the right pillar of the crew, so you know that you have uh, clean up your window behind the left gastric artery. Right. So that's the first step. Then we go to the right side. So we go back to the pancreas, and we uh, find the splenic artery, and we take all that packet of lymph nodes, and we push it up towards the left gastric vein and artery. Then we go on the back around uh, the retroperitoneum, what the celiac artery would be, and find again from the right side then the cruise and the diaphragm um, where we did our dissection from the, uh, um, from the say, left side. With the other yeah. side. Uh, 
So then when we have all our window around the left gastric, depends, you know, if the vein, sometimes the vein has some uh, variability, uh, can be anterior to the, to the artery or posterior to the artery. If they're close enough, I take them together with a stapler. If they're, you know, not so close enough and there is fatty tissue in between that I wanted to dissect completely, the vein can be clipped. The very left easily, gastric. yeah, can be clipped very easily and divided. You could mm -hmm. potentially also just divide it with the harmonic, but if you want to be safe, just clip it first. Mm -hmm. And then we'll give you a very good exposure of the celiac right. and the left gastric artery. You push all that lymphatic tissue up, and then you just staple. So I staple the left gastric. That's my first step of the operation. Right. Uh, let's say that you move on to the mobilization of the stomach and yeah. the hiatal dissection. Yeah, uh, so that's my second, that? mm -hmm. second portion. So the surgeon has to lift up the stomach but exposed by retracting the stomach towards the liver and uh, the assistant will retract the omentum uh, the opposite direction so then the surgeon can divide the gastrocolic ligament that's your first step then you move up towards the fundus that's the first step the you know the, the mm, second portion that. of the greater um, curvature mobilization and then, you know, after this area, your short gastric vessel would start. Mm -hmm. For the short gastric vessels, make sure you expose the area very, very well. Because if you have bleeding in that area and you have no exposure, things get ugly very quickly. So before you start dividing any short gastric, get your exposure completely uh, so retract the stomach up, the fundus superiorly, the body inferiorly towards the right foot, and then the assistant will pull down the um, omentum and really want to see that spleen. Those because sometimes those vessels are very, very, very short, mm -hmm. and I actually sometimes you switch. You have the assistant take those short gastric vessels if their direction of the harmonics is easier. That's when you have taken all the vessels. You can see that there are attachment of the stomach with the diaphragm. Uh, that's the phrenoesophageal membrane. And you can divide it there very, very uh, easily from the left side, right? Retracting the stomach towards the right side. And that's the easiest way to see that area between the esophagus, the left cruise, and the posterior uh, per um, right. peritoneum. All right, so after we finish the, the greater curvature Approximately up. And we're going to go down. Then we're going down. Right. So that is the, one of the you know, more difficult part, especially minimally invasively, because you really have to expose the planes very well. So sometimes the transverse mesocolon is a little bit attached to the posterior wall of the stomach and to the pedicle, to the area where your um, right gastric, um, mm -hmm. gastropoic vessels are. So you have to recognize that and make sure that you understand what belongs to the stomach mm -hmm. and what belongs to the okay. transverse mesocolon. So for easy, you know, to, to make it easy to teach, uh, usually you just stay at first on a superficial le level and just take the gastrocolic ligament and detach the omentum basically from mm -hmm. the stomach. Then you go a little bit on the deeper level and trying to really find that plane between the pedicle of this uh, gastroepiploic and the transverse mesocolon. And then stay on that plane all the way down to basically duodenum. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you want to make sure you divide completely the gastrocolic ligament all the way around until you see the duodenum coming from the retroperitoneum. And why is that important post-op? It's very important because I think leaving it attached, it might lead to development of uh, periconduit herniation. Uh, also, I think that that gives you more mobility of conduit when you go in the chest. I honestly don't think the Coker maneuver will help or add much to the conduit uh, length. I think what helps to get the conduit higher, if you have any issue with length, is really get that pedicle of the right gastroepiploic completely mobilized to its base um, from the you know, transverse mesocolon. And, uh, and that will give you really the flexibility of bringing the conduit up. Great. How do you ensure that um, the, the stomach is adequately mobilized? How do you? I usually have a little tricky maneuver in the sense that I grab the pylorus mm -hmm. and I see if the pylorus come up at the uh, EG junction. Okay. So if uh, the pylorus reach the hiatus or just below the hiatus, then I know I have 
very good mobilization and okay. should not have any problem with the with the conduit lamp. Right. Um, you talked about the um, uh, gastric emptying uh, yeah. procedure a little bit earlier, but um, do you routinely perform? Uh, what do, do you prefer? I do Botox yeah, and routinely. You do Botox injections. Yeah, uh, Botox injection is a lot quicker, mm -hmm. laparoscopically, uh, than a myotomy. And for the most part, it's all you need. Yeah. I really don't have any issue with gastric emptying postoperatively. Also, not having a pyloroplasty or pyloromyotomy, I think, decrease the rate of biliary reflux postoperatively. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and perhaps even um, dumping syndrome. Um, then, uh, what's the next thing that you do? Um, do you move on to the creation of the gastric conduit? Well, or? I do first the mobilization of the esophagus mm -hmm. before. So I want my esophagus and my stomach completely mobilized before I do the tubalization. Mm -hmm. So that the tubalization is kind of the last part. Okay. I keep the transiatal mobilization of the esophagus as the last um, before doing the last the portion case. of the case before doing the gastric uh, tubalization mm -hmm. because of issues with hemodynamics as we said earlier right. so I, um, I you know this is cancer for the most part what I do is, is cancer operation of course it's benign it's very different but if you're doing a cancer operation you want to make sure your margins are negative and you want to stay very wide around the esophagus within the mediastinum um, so Do you take a rim of diaphragm or not necessarily? Not necessarily, but if the diaphragm is involved, I'd definitely take a rim. Mm -hmm. uh, what I think is important steps here for the transatal mobilization is uh, um, identify the aorta early because you really want to see where the aorta is, but also you want to take all that fatty tissue that is on top of the aorta. Um, laterally, you want to go up to the plurals both bilaterally, and if there is a lot of stickiness because of preoperative therapy, radiation, whatever, take the pleura, uh, because you know that will give us will give you a better uh, radial margin. margin. Right. Anteriorly, with the um, with the pericardium, there are important lymph nodes there that you don't want to live uh, within the pericardium. Those are all the pericardial nodes, mm -hmm. and for a G junction tumor, those are important nodes to be removed. So you really wanted to skeletonize. You want to see the pericardium and clean it completely from this fatty tissue that is around the esophagus. So you want to go 360 around the esophagus with those kind of limits in your mind and make sure that you have a very good lymphadenectomy. Then I put a panrose drain around the distal esophagus and by holding the panrose and retracting then you can go up, up higher within the mediastinum anteriorly laterally and posteriorly and you go as high as you can go because i think that the highest you go from the abdomen That's the easiest easy. the easier it is than when you go to the chest so what i do at the end to make sure there is nothing yes yet stuck to the esophagus i slide the panrose up if the panrose goes up all the way up to the esophagus, into the chest, into the, chest, into the esophagus that, that mm -hmm. I mobilize, then I know that I don't have anything so attached to the esophagus. Otherwise, the panrose would not slide up. Right. So that's the final test that I know I am all free, you know, 360 around the esophagus. All right. Uh, and then, so after you finish the hiatal dissection, then uh, can you walk us through the uh, conduit? How do you tubularize your conduit? Yeah. So. First rule is make sure there is nothing in the stomach. <laughs> okay. Oh, we have a new anesthesiologist. Yes. <laughs> the first thing you do before you even start tubularization, you say, "Is there anything in the stomach? Please remove the NG tube because that would be really, really a bad day." <laughs> so then I start pretty low on my tubularization um, because I think that once if you open up the stomach pretty low, you can get more length around the greater curvature. So I basically start maybe a couple of centimeters above the pylorus, mm -hmm. and I use a vascular stapler first, mm -hmm. and uh, I divide the, the uh, right gastric artery. Mm -hmm. uh, then I use like a 45 purple um, stapler, and that will give me the size of the conduit. So right next to where you just cut your right gastric artery. You go in perpendicularly to your conduit, to your stomach, right? And you decide how thick or thin you want the stomach to be. I personally prefer a thinner conduit rather than the big conduit, so about four centimeters in size. Mm -hmm. I think that at the emptying, 
of the stomachs a little bit better if you have a smaller conduit. Also, it comes through the diaphragm a lot easier. You can come up pretty high right. into the chest without difficulties. Um, so then after this kind of uh, sizing of the conduit, then you have to stretch the stomach. And sometimes that is hard laparoscopically to stretch it. So you want the surgeon uh, to hold you know, the lesser curvature of the stomach where the staple line is and pull down towards the right foot. The assistant is going to hold the fundus of the stomach and stretch it up towards the uh, um, left diaphragm. And then uh, if you have an extra end, you know, the assistant have two hands, you should pull down a little bit uh, towards the bottom of the stomach with the pylorosis kind of stretch it down towards the, the feet. That will give you the nice, good kind of distension of your stomach. And so then I use 60s and I go and I stay parallel to the greater curvature, keeping that four centimeters in size. Um, and you have to be a little careful with these distal tumors. You know, you have to make sure that you keep your margin from the tumor. I leave the stomach attached to the specimen side mm -hmm. of the esophagus. I don't divide the conduit Completely. all the way. I just leave it a little attached. It makes it easy then to pull it up. I also put a couple of interrupted stitches along, so I don't completely bury the staple line of the stomach. But I do put a couple of Lambert stitches um, for a couple of reasons. I like to put Lambert stitches in between you know, the, the junction of two staples, just make sure there is no issues there. But also it helps you to pull when you retract the um, conduit up in the chest. You don't have to hold the stomach. You don't have to grab the staple line. You can grab your stitches. Also tells me how much conduit I have because I always put a stitch at where I think that's the end of my conduit. I would like the rest of the portion of the stomach to stay in the abdomen. And so when I'm in the chest, I pull up up to that point. It gives me, me a, a visual marking, uh, a marker of where the stomach right. and the conduit finish. Okay. Uh, and then the last, uh, what is the last step that you do in the abdomen before you move on to the chest? Feeding yeah? tube. So I always put a feeding tube. Feeding tube is my little safety mattress, I, I, <laughs> safety net. I, if anything goes wrong or whatever, the patient is not doing so great, you know, you, you, you can feed it with a feeding tube. And uh, so then you have to rush it, you know, having the patient eat and maintain their calorie values the first week or two after the right. operation. Feeding tube, I do a, a Seldinger technique. Mm -hmm. I do uh, put, uh, I use absorbable stitches. I think that's important because sometimes you use non-absorbable stitches and they might leak bile through uh, and, and become chronic mm -hmm. um, granulomas. Right. So I use four stitches with uh, polysorb. I um, put them in a shape like a diamond shape into the uh, intestine um, and I take them through the abdominal wall with the Carter Thompson. So mm -hmm. I match the diamond shape in the bowel to a diamond shape into the skin of the patient. I suspend the bowel with four stitches and then I go right in the middle with a needle, a wire, a sheet, and then I put a feeding tube. Um, I use a 14 French uh, feeding tube, so it's a little larger, doesn't get obstructed all the time because, of course, sometimes somebody will put some kind of medication through it. And uh, I use a 15 French sheet, so the balloon will not go through mm -hmm. your sheet. So I actually leave the balloon out, and I feel like by leaving the balloon out, you don't stretch the um, the the jejunum. When you stretch the hole and the jejunum, when you push the balloon in, then you have leakage if you don't have a purse string. So I leave the balloon out. If if the the jejunum, uh, if there is a leak or a little bit of, you know, uh, biliary leak postoperatively, you always have your balloon that you can push it in and inflate it. Mm -hmm. So I use that as a also safety net. It's there. If I need it, I push it in. If I don't need it, ninety nine percent, I don't even need it. I leave it just outside of the skin, and then I put a new torsion stitch about a couple of centimeters distal to this mm -hmm. side of insertion, and um, that's it. So it takes about 15 minutes really to do the to the, the, the feeding tube and then really save you um, sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. All right, and then, so that, that will complete the abdominal part. Yeah. Uh, then as so we move on to the, to the esophagus, so this is the part when the patient gets repositioned and uh, when you come back, the patient gets prepped um, and you turn the left lateral decubitus position with the right side up. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I do 
position the patient lateral decubitus, make sure you flex the patient enough so you have enough space in between the ribs and the hip is out of your way. Mm -hmm. And then I use th four trokers. Uh, three 12 millimeter trokers and one five millimeter trokers. Uh, the I go in again with the opti um, optical uh, troker, and I for the chest I usually just go in with a 45. I, I use a 45 degree camera for mm -hmm. all the abdominal face, uh, but you know in the chest there's less issues with injury. You know there is right. lung underneath, so I just go in directly with a 45 um, degree camera, so you don't have to switch cameras. And then when you're in with your trocar, you just insufflate. I use insufflation in the chest. And then uh, I put another, uh, so when I go in, I go in the seventh intercostal space with the camera, but that's not gonna be my camera port. My camera port is actually gonna be a little lower, like in the eight or nine intercostal space. And I try to keep the camera port and the assistant port kind of in the same line, because the chest is very, is a little bit more difficult mm -hmm. to do thoracoscopically. And, um, the level of difficulty can increase significantly if you put your camera very posteriorly because then you're always fighting to try to understand you're always working into a mirror and it's very difficult so put your camera anterior enough that you have all the three trokers where there is a camera and two trokers that the surgeon use pretty aligned with each other and then there is a five millimeter troker that i put it depends you know depending on on the, uh, the spine characteristic. If the spine is, is leaning in the chest very much, then I put a little bit more anterior. Mm -hmm. If the spine is nice and straight, I put a little bit more posterior, but about five, uh, 15 intercostal space, and so that's the assistant trocar mm -hmm. um, and to help retraction. Okay. After the, <clears throat> after the uh, port placement, then um, can you walk us through the, uh, what was your yep. first part of the, the, uh, the operation so, in the chest? So first, Divide the inferior pulmonary ligament, mm -hmm. right, and expose the posterior mediastinum. Then I, um, I, I, the surgeon will use the left hand with the harmonic to go up. So from the inferior pulmonary ligament, divide the posterior mediastinum pleura all the way up to the azygos. Do you go anything anywhere a above, bit above the azygos? Yeah, I like to do my anastomosis just above the azygos. I save the, the pleura above the azygos, so I cut the pleura above the azygos like uh, parallel to the azygos, so I save kind of that little cap that I can put over my anastomosis. Okay. But then switch hands, mm -hmm. go from the top, and divide all the posterior mediastinal pleura from the azygos to the diaphragm posteriorly. Then, at next step, we dissect the azygos out, and we staple the azygos, and we open it up. Now we have the all esophagus kind of uh, area dissected anteriorly and posteriorly. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's easier when you teach, and it's easier a little bit to learn, to start by doing your esophageal dissection anteriorly, so from between the esophagus and the airway. So first, I think it's very easy to find the pericardium. Pericardium is always a safety zone. Mm -hmm. It's nothing there you can injure. Stay on the pericardium, free everything up, take all that fat off the pericardium, right, and find your esophageal plane. Then you come up to that corner between the inferior pulmonary vein and the right bronchus intermedius, right? So in that area, in that corner, is that where your infracarinal lymph nodes start. And you can see that there's a lymph node there. Keep those lymph nodes down and develop the plane between the esophagus and the airway. I think it's a little easier to understand what that plane is if you leave the lymph nodes down. So you don't have to come underneath the airway. Right. And you will come back for the I'll come back with later. a lymphadenectomy right. later. But at the, I think it's a little bit easier because at this point here, you basically dissect the esophagus off the bronchus intermedius and you follow it up until you find carina. Mm -hmm. And then you follow it down towards the left main bronchus. In the beginning, when we started doing minimally invasive esophagectomy, there were a lot of reported issues with injury airway. to yeah. the airways. And I think you injured the, way, the airways because you don't know exactly what they are. You can feel it, and you know you uh, might come up from the back, and you don't expect that they are there. So I think it's easier to dissect all your esophagus off the airway from the right side. Okay, and when you know that everything is dissected from the uh, right side anteriorly, then you can go back posteriorly and take all of those, um, you know, uh, 
tissue on the back. So there mm. you have lymph nodes, right. right? You have attachment with the pleura, or the left pleura, and then you have all of your aortic branches. Mm -hmm. So now you know that though you can just divide all that tissue with right. no problem so mm -hmm. because you have already dissected off and you know what the, what the um, left main bronchus is. Actually, I like to see the left main bronchus mm -hmm. From you know when you you retract the esophagus anteriorly towards the pericardium, you look with your scope from the back, and I like to see that bronchus underneath me as I come up and I divide the esophageal branches up to the arch of the aorta, because uh, you know that you're not going to injure it. Mm -hmm. Then you then you arch you you are at the arch. You make sure that at that point you need to think about laryngeal recurrent nerve. And so at that point, you want to start aiming towards the esophagus. So stay, you know, you expose your aorta very well. You took all those tissues around the trachea and the aorta. Uh, but at that point, aim up back towards the esophagus because there you really have a risk of injuring uh, the, the, the left right. current that it comes up mm -hmm. above the arch. Above the um, so then when you have dissected your aura esophagus completely and everything is nice and free, uh, of course, you left the penrose in there, so I use the penrose by, you know, pulling on the penrose up and up, advance it towards the top. It helps you retraction and see what you've left, you mm -hmm. know, to divide. I use a stapler to divide the esophagus because I use the Oroville technique. But if you use a different technique, you can cut it or, you right. know, do as you please with that. Uh, I do use a purple stapler. I staple the esophagus um, right above the azygous vein. For the most part, there you have enough margin, and your conduit will have nice and straight length mm -hmm. that not going to give you any issues. Um, and then, uh, as you know, I move the esophagus basically towards the bottom, towards the um, towards the uh, diaphragm. Then you expose completely your infracranial space. Mm -hmm. So now you can really look at all the structures, the anatomical structure. And I really always ask the resident. We always do the same. Uh, way here as Same well. Same way every time. Every time. So we start at that corner between the inferior, vena, uh, inferior pulmonary, pulmonary yeah. vein and the bronchus intermedius. We find the plane where the lymph nodes are. We stay parallel to bronchus intermedius up to carina. And then we come then down parallel to the left main bronchus. It's like a triangle. Mm -hmm. Basically, you go up to carina, you come down parallel. And then there is a little area of difficulty because there is that corner between the left pulmonary vein, right, and the end of the edge of your uh, uh, left main bronchus, there mm -hmm. was always some lymph nodes there, and hard to see the structure, but that's, that's the end of your triangle. So you go from the right vein to the left vein, and then you got all the stuff on the back, which is pericardial. Pericardial, basically. Yeah. And then you have all your infracranial lymphadenectomy done. And so at this point, then you are all exposed. You're, I, I like to place my Oroville before I pull the conduit up because there's nothing to in my way. Mm -hmm. So now everything is dissected, zap is out of my way. So I ask anesthesia to pass the Oroville. And I've changed a little bit of that technique. I used mm -hmm. to put the Oroville in the middle of the stump, and now I put it, I, I take it out on the side, on a corner. I think the Oroville has, the main downside of the Oroville is that you have uh, staple, staple on staple. And, staple. Okay. and so when you put the Oroville in the middle, of your staple line of the esophageal stump, they have two areas mm -hmm. of weakness. When you put the orbit on one side, then you have only one area of weakness where so you have a staple. So at the corner of the staple line, that's where you get there. So now, now I put it at the corner. Mm -hmm. I put it right at the corner of the staple line, above the staple line, mm -hmm. um, not not below, because I think that the um, the edge of the circular uh, stapler, stapler mm -hmm. anastomosis is a little stronger where you have still the staple mm -hmm. line on your stump. And so I, I wanted the strongest part of my anastomosis to be towards the airway. I'm really, really scared and, and I want to avoid all costs and efficient <laughs> with the airway. So, uh, so I put it a little bit above and on the side of the esophageal stump and I leave it there. Um, it's nice to um, to place the Oroville easier. You wanted the anesthesiologist to keep a little bit of tension. You pushed and hold it, pushed, and then you kind of use your bovi with the cutting mode because you want to keep that hole as small and snugged around the NG tube as possible. If you have a big, big hole, then your edges of the tissue will come out of your circular anastomosis. So you want a small hole and you want it right next to the staple line. 
and you want to see the staple line coming out in the specimen on your donuts. You want to see that staple line. If there is no staple line on your donuts, then the staple line is in the patient and you have a staple line on staple line and that's a leak mm -hmm. by definition. So you always look, then in your donuts you have a piece of staple line. And just for people who are not yeah. familiar with the Orva, can you just explain really quick? Uh, because you the mentioned Orva, yeah, yeah, so the Orva basically is a way to pass the anvil of your mm -hmm. EEA mm -hmm. into the esophageal stump. So you can definitely do a purse string and push it in through the esophagus, but it's a little easier to pass it through the mouth. Mm -hmm. So the anvil is attached to a long NG tube, um, we put it in the mouth, and then you basically first uh, withdraw the uh, NG tube through and this esophageal stump and then pull in all the way until your anvil sits within the distal esophageal stump. Mm -hmm. And there is a little trick there to pass it, and physiologists will be familiar with it. They have to help you a little bit, give you a little jaw trust when it goes through mm -hmm. uh, the so it pharynx. Get stuck in mm -hmm. the Otherwise, you can get a little stuff. But you know, the maximum diameter is the 25. Most people don't need more than a 25, and most people can pass a 25 through their um, right. through through their uh, pharynx. Okay. So after uh, so you how do you bring the EEA through the through the? Well, stomach? then we pull the stomach up. Mm -hmm. So next phase, next step is to pull the stomach up. Mm -hmm. So it's it, with, when you pull the stomach up, you just have to apply a pressure like you're pulling up, but then be patient. Sometimes it's just a uh, have to wait a little bit, and then the stomach will just come up all the liver, right? If you want to go too fast, it's to rip in the fat and all this nice dissection that you have done, that's not good, especially not oncologically very good. So be patient if you have a bulky tumor, it takes a little, little effort. So you hold it with some graspers and you hold the pressure up and then just wait a little bit. And then you'll see that all of a sudden it will give come, it, it will mm -hmm. give in and come in. And then, you know, once you're have delivered the specimen, you want to look for your staple line before you pull up too much of the conduit, mm -hmm. right? So the lesser curvature will come up first. Then you look at that, um, uh, that uh, the crotch basically that you left between the specimen and your conduit, mm -hmm. and you grab that little staple line so you keep it oriented. Right. You want to keep Which it oriented. Which do you want that on? You want your staple line to look at you basically towards the the lateral side of the chest. Mm -hmm. And then you, hand to hand, you pull it up. I use, you know, those stitches, those slumber stitches that I placed around my suture, and I pull the stomach all the way up. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes the omentum, especially if you left a very fatty omentum um, on the on the gastropeploic uh, pedicle attached mm -hmm. to it, might make it difficult for the conduit to come up. So you just have to right, be patient again, Move your conduit forward towards the anterior portion of the, of the stomach, of the chest. Find that area of fat that is stuck, mm -hmm. and then slowly pull the fat up. Once the fat is delivered in the chest, then everything will come up very easily. But always be very gentle with manipulation of the greater curvature fat. Don't injure the gastroploic, of course, and just be very patient. Things sometimes just happen with a little time. And so when your conduit is all the way up, then you divide it. You finish your tubalization. I use a, use a you know a stapler to cut completely. Here, be careful because again, you can compromise your margin with the tumor. Mm -hmm. So stay on your line between the G junction and the fundus once you finish your tubalization, so that you have your five centimeter margin from the tumor. Then I put the um, specimen into a bag and I send it to pathology. I always send it for evaluation of the margins. I had mm -hmm. some really bad experience in a situation where I thought margins were completely like kilometers away and then yeah. they were positive. So, so I always wait for the anastomosis even though sometimes it's very painful. It takes a while, yeah. it takes a while but it's, it's, it's good to know that you don't have cancer in your margins. Right. And then, so when we have, uh, before doing the anastomosis, I use this fluorescence imaging evaluation. I think it helps, it makes you comfortable that your conduit is well perfused. Also sometimes, about a third of the time, you have demarcation of the tip. Mm -hmm. And so you know that you want to stay below that area of demarcation. I mean, with Edward Lewis, it's less so important, I think, because you have, usually for the most part, you have a lot of stomach that you can use. You can tailor really what you do with your anastomosis. But it kind of makes you feel good. It helps, you know, to really understand that you have a good conduit. So then I first I do the anastomosis and then transect. So mm -hmm. because with the Orovel, I think it's, it's easier to keep enough of the stomach. I go in with the EA uh, from the top of the stomach. Mm -hmm. And I insert the EA inside the stomach, like you know, mm -hmm. you're putting a sock mm -hmm. into your foot 
yeah. right? So you, you put the stomach rice and ni nice inside the EA. And now here, in my opinion, I like to do the anastomosis on the left side, the side towards the aura of the stomach um, and keep the um, greater curvature fat pad and the gastropopoic right. um, vessels between the anastomosis and the airway. Okay, so and I go on the left side. So I pull all the fat down towards the airway and I take the pin out on the outside wall of the stomach. Okay, so you take your pin out, you see the orange marker, and then you just engage your EA with the pin. Now, this is a little tricky with the Oroville because, as you know, the Oroville is tilted. Mm -hmm. So once you push the pin in, you untilt the Oroville. So you have to be a little patient with that, too. Just give it time for the uh, little or the end belt to kind of um, come up mm -hmm. as a mushroom, right? And uh, don't force it in because otherwise you might hurt or, you know, like um, displace the end of your anvil too much that doesn't hold tight around your orange marker anymore, around the pen. So mm -hmm. be careful. You will know, you'll see that the EA tilts up perpendicular to, 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 your, uh, to the anvil, and then you just connect the anvil with your pen of the EA. And then you do your osmosis. Now when you close, um, you have to be careful that no fat goes inside your anastomosis. That's very, very important. So you hold all the fat down. You want to stretch the stomach a little bit as you clo as you clo uh, you closing your EA and make sure that nothing goes in between. Mm -hmm. And usually my anastomosis comes like underneath that pleural um, tent that I saved azigas, right? just above the azigas. And when the anastomosis is finished, then you look at your donuts. Make sure you have complete donuts, both sides, stomach and esophagus. Plus, if you use the Orville technique, you want to make sure that you have a little piece staple. of staple on the camera with you. So now at this point, um, I have, I know one area of weakness, right? The, which is the linear staple line of the esophageal stump and the circular staple line in the stomach. Then mm -hmm. I put a stitch on that area. Okay. So I put a nice stitch with the endo stitch to make sure that, you know, even there is a small, um, a contained little leakage there, things don't heal completely, then I have like another stitch on the outside. Mm -hmm. you, you talked about uh, having the, the fat on the greater curvature mm -hmm. of the stomach between the airway and your anastomosis. Mm -hmm. it sounds like it's something very important. What, or what are you trying to avoid or what reason is it? If there is, even sometime there might be, I think, first of all, the old esophageal trachea fish loss are for the most part secondary to leaks. Mm -hmm. um, it, I, don't, I don't think you're really a fish law just because you injury the airway. I think right. that there is a chronic inflammation, like a small abscess. That erodes into And the then airway. it goes the way of less resistance, which is going inside the airway. So sometimes you might have a small, uh, even contained leak that create that little area of infection or a little abscess in that region. And if you think about it, if you don't have anything between the airway and the esophagus, even a smaller abscess, chronic abscess, will just eventually open up into mm -hmm. your airways. And so that's when you see delayed, you know, leaks or delayed issues that come to you. Um, so if you have, if you have your fat pad, the, the, the greater curvature fat in between, then even if you have maybe a um, subclinical leak mm -hmm. or something, you don't even know there is a leak there, you know, it might be covered or taken care of by having a little bit of uh, protection between your airways and the, and, and the right. anastomosis. So that's why I like it mm -hmm. that way. All right. Well, um, I think that's probably the last part. Just a, one final question. Do you yeah. perform an EGD at the end? Uh, and do you leave an, uh, an NG tube or yeah. what do you I do leave do? an NG tube. Mm -hmm. So I watch the NG2 coming in, you make sure it's, it. I advance it, I want it in the distal conduit, usually 45 is my number. I live at a 45, it works pretty much for, for everyone unless you have somebody really tall or really short. And I want to make sure it sumps. Okay, so if it doesn't sum, I change it so that it sumps. And then um, I don't do an EGD at the end. Um, you know, if I'm concerned that donuts are not good, or that you know the anastomosis was not good, then I would do definitely an EGD or put some stitches. So sometimes I put some extra stitches outside if I'm concerned. But for the most part, if you have good donuts and you're not concerned, then I wouldn't do an EGD. I always do put the you know fat pad in between the airways and the esophagus, the anastomosis. Sometimes I keep, I save a little piece of that omentum before I staple 
the end of the stomach off and I cover on top of the anastomosis. And then I always tag the pleura to the stomach mm -hmm. to relieve a little tension within the stomach conduit, but also to protect a little bit there right. if you have any, um, uh, you know, contained leak in that area. So yeah, so I don't test it. Mm -hmm. And then chest, if you leave a chest of in. I do leave a chest too, mm -hmm. yeah. All right, um, now let's uh, just briefly talk about the, the three-hole uh, McKeon operation. Mm -hmm. So it's basically, we're not gonna go through no, like the, the whole operation, the details are same. basically the same except for the neck part. Yeah. Um, so for that neck part, can you just briefly say, um, how do you do? Uh, the anastomosis? Mm -hmm. It depends. I have to say that if I have enough stomach length and esophageal length, I might just use the Orbel again. Mm -hmm. Very easy to do, and I know I I've done it so many times. It's like the more standard for me. But otherwise, you can just do a hand sewn if you have very little length. Mm -hmm. uh, then you can do a hand sewn, or you can do a you know um, colored yeah. anastomosis where you do the back wall with the sta linear stapler, mm -hmm. and then you just oversew the front basically mm -hmm. of your common um, enterotomies. Okay. Um, then uh, I think we talked about transhiatal too, right? Um, I think yeah, transhiatal. There's really not a lot not of difference. I mean, talk, yeah. McEwen, of course. You, let's let's just a few more tips on the McEwen. You want to start in the chest first, but the technique is the same. Mm -hmm. The difficulty, if you want to do it the McEwen laparoscopically, is how to pull the conduit up. Right. Because uh, you want to make sure you have a nice, uh, you know, that your fat doesn't get caught, and then you have a good inlet, especially at the neck, to pull it up. So that's a little tricky sometimes to pull it up. I don't leave. The only difference that I do when I do a three holes is that I completely divide the conduit from my specimen. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I and do then you not. Put a stitch to... I don't put a stitch. I actually uh, take the whole specimen first out, and then I place like either a foley with a balloon or a big and um, um, chest tube, and attach the conduit to that to pull it up. Okay. Because I think that you're gonna have too much tension, too much stuff on the neck. You don't know where the conduit starts, and sometimes you can break. That uh, that uh, you know the end corner. of your staple line, the corner, and that's not good. So right. I that's the only difference I would do for the Mickey one. I completely divide the specimen from the conduit and take the conduit up separately from the specimen. Right. Uh, yeah. For the transaital, pretty much same concept, mm -hmm. uh, just a lot of the um, dissection, the transhiatal uh, dissection is all blind. Mm -hmm. So you really want to stay in the esophagus, okay? When you do blind. Um, dissection, what gets you into troubles in when you get one of those bronchial arteries or esophageal arteries uh, that you rip off the aorta with no stump. Mm -hmm. So the closest, the closer you are to the esophagus, the less chance for that to happen, especially when you are, you know, the, you can see the distal end of the esophagus when you're doing your, you know, initial dissection, but when you go really up high, very high with your hand, right. in a blind zone, just stay within, stay next to your esophagus, and that's how you safely dissect the esophagus up. And then the anastomosis is pretty much it's the same. All right, well, I think that basically covers it all. Um, and on behalf of the uh, Thoracic Surgery Residents Association, I really want to thank Dr. Molina for, uh, for sharing her knowledge with us. Appreciate it. It was, thank a, you. it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Thank you.